Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast series. Today, I've got Jay with me, and um, Jay's going to introduce himself now, and we're going to take it from there. How's it going, everybody? My name is Jay from, uh, I'll say, Kansas. Um, Don't want to get any more specific than that. Um, So I guess to open up with a background of like who I am, right? Uh, 30-year-old white male. um, I don't really like labels, but I guess if you had to describe a label, it would be bisexual. But um, So that's kind of where I'm coming from with that. Uh, Veteran, I was in the military for seven years just recently um, got out. It was an honorable discharge and everything, thank God. But uh, anyway, so some background kind of grew up in, I didn't always live in Kansas. It was because I was in the army. I grew up in Michigan, uh, Metro Detroit area. Um, and, And so as far as like my experiences growing up with addictions and stuff, I know for a fact that my, um, on my mother's side of the family, uh, grandpa was an alcoholic. I've been, I never met him because he died like a month after I was born. But from what I've been told, that man would like slam a 30 rack of a PBR like every day. Um, oh, wow. so, I mean, yeah, yeah. His cirrhosis and all that got him. Mm-hmm. Um, mother definitely has some issues with pills and stuff. Um, and then my dad is also an alcoholic and I know he was taking Suboxone, which for those who might not know, Suboxone is a, uh, opioid replacement medication that they give to people who, um, are addicted to whether it be like painkillers or heroin or whatever. It's like similar to methadone. And I, I knew he had those, but he never really talked about it. So I kind of saw the evidence, but I don't really know the whole story there. So it's been pretty freaking um, common in my family, um, and as and as uh, I'm, I also suffer from an addiction, the the, the different stuff. Uh, to be clear, I'm a uh, my drugs of choice. Well, I used to I used to drink a lot. I have actually I haven't touched alcohol in a couple months. Uh, meth meth is the big one for me. Um, still using it, trying to get off of it. Um, yeah, so that that's a little bit of uh, oh, so background family. Um, I'd say upper middle class, like wealthy, but not like Jeff Bezos wealthy, kind of like dad owned a a construction company more or less, and uh, that brought in some good money. So it's not like I was living in poverty my entire life, but I would definitely say they were emotionally and uh, verbally abusive. And uh, there's a couple of times where I got hit and stuff, but I I don't think it was that bad in regards to physical abuse. so let's yeah, pause. For, let's pause for a round. second there. Uh huh. Um, that 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 went very quickly. <laughs> we were talking. Okay. Yeah. So um, your you talked about your grandfather uh, mm-hmm. slamming thirty racks. Your mom was with. She had some pill problems. Your dad had mm-hmm. uh, was taking Suboxone. Um, mm-hmm. but then when you got into yourself, your childhood, kind of professional managerial class, like yes, upper middle class. Uh, white collar, um, maybe not white collar, blue collar, but owner class of blue collar. Yeah, petty, petty um, bourgeois, I would say, pet, would be yeah. the perfect phrase. Yeah, petty bourgeois. Um, and I think in the opioid epidemic, we're seeing that class of you know kind of upper middle class white people being affected. Um, the people that you quote unquote wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think that might have, uh, had an effect on, in terms of your upbringing there on 
kind of the class of drugs that you were ended up becoming um, dependent on? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, so to be clear, like I, I don't talk to my parents anymore. They both got a lot of horrible stuff going on, but um, I don't want to associate with them anymore. But uh, as far as that, like I agree it is a thing and it's, it's I, I would almost say it's like the whole opioid epidemic. The only reason people are talking about it is because like you said, you know, like the white middle to upper class uh, youth are getting hooked on it. So now suddenly everyone cares, right? But I don't know how long my dad has had Suboxone for. I knew he was on it like when I was in college. So that would be like 2008, 2011 time period. Then after college, I got out. So um, it wasn't so much the opiates that it was, but as alcohol, you know, gotcha. like everyone in high school, everyone drinks and stuff. And I kind of went overboard with it and, uh, you know, started it out just like hanging i think the first time i like consciously drank was uh i was like 12 or 13 playing some xbox games or something and you know thought i was the coolest dude in the world because i snuck one of those uh what do you call those little mike's hard lemonade wine cooler things and uh yeah yeah so that that was it got started and then you know I, I liked how the effects felt and saw that my dad did it a lot and all my peers were doing it at the time and so i just kind of went overboard with it and uh I never got to the point where I was like a DT. So that's like, you know, if you're a severe alcoholic, like you start having seizures and your handshakes and all that. I never got to that point, but I was definitely blackout, like, you know, like two to three times a week in high school. So I'm talking like by this point, like 15, 16 years old, getting blackout drunk two to three times a night. It was, it was bad. Um, and then the other one, as far as the meth goes, so I was prescribed Adderalls. Um, Mm-hmm. And again, it's it, I can get into more of this later, but to preview, right? Um, mm-hmm. I do think that that class of drugs, because I'm I'm like legit diagnosed with ADHD, so um, that class of drugs does have some benefits for me. However, it's also uh, an addictive thing, and having ADHD makes you more prone to addictions. So, uh, yeah, I just kind of started, you know, instead of taking it as prescribed, I'd take like a half a pill more, and you know, then you build up a tolerance, and you go to two to three. And you're soon you're needing like 150 milligrams of Adderall and then you're like, fuck it, let's go to meth. So uh, I can get more into that later, but that's kind of how I got introduced to that particular substance. Yeah. So you kind of, the, uh, the ADHD was a little bit, you're going to have a addictive tendencies or compulsive tendencies anyway. So it was just like, all right, well, I need it. I need more, more, more because it's basically meth light or legal meth for kids at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny. Meth actually has a brand name. Um, your doctor can technically prescribe it. It's a Schedule II narcotic. The name is Desoxin, and you could technically get that prescribed. You know, I, I don't know anyone who's ever been prescribed it before, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's an actual thing that you can get. Yeah, so um, from going on, maybe timeline-wise, 15, mm-hmm. 16 years old, you're getting blackout drunk twice a week. Yeah. Um, where do you go from there? Okay, so I got out of college, 2011 time frame. Um, just kind of floated around. I, I I took up a bunch of random ass jobs like carpet cleaning, substitute teacher, um, just kind of whatever I did. And then I met my uh, now ex-wife at the time. Um, we met over the internet, and uh, I was real lonely at the time and kind of depressed. So like, I went over to this attractive woman's house and you know, we ended up sleeping with each other and 
it was game over from there for me because I was just like, oh, man, I thought it was love. But anyways, um, so anyways, about a year after that, uh, get married to her and then start having kids. Uh, I got two kids. Um, so, yep. And then uh, she ends up being diagnosed with uh, diabe- gestational diabetes mm-hmm. and then ends up being a permanent thing. So, like, I'm, I'm sitting here working some fucking, you know, throwaway job, like $10 an hour cleaning carpets, uh, no health insurance, not a whole lot going on with my life. And the relationship had been a lot of ups and downs, too. Like, uh, got into arguments and shit. It never really escalated to the point of, like, physical violence, but we would have some pretty bad arguments and she would like kick me out of the house and stuff. And mm-hmm. it was pretty bad. So I was kind of like homeless for a while too. But, um, but at this point though, I wasn't really using any of the harder drugs. I was just drinking a lot. Um, but yeah. anyways, so, uh, no health insurance, uh, shitty job. I got one, I got a step a step child. I got a, um, a son who's just born and another on the way. Right. So I was like, fuck it. What am I going to do? Tried to go back to graduate school. Uh, that didn't work out because of some, I don't know, some administrative requirements. The university tried getting a job in like computer programming, finance, uh, you know, like something that would pay the bills and have health insurance. None of it was working out. So at that point, I was like, fuck this. I'm going to join the army. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you know what? The army's always hiring. And this was, this was 2014 now. Um, so, yeah, then I joined the army. Obviously, you can't really use drugs when you're in the army, which is, eh, well, we can talk about that more, right? But, uh, at, I at mean, the time, I'd though, love I joined... to explore it if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that, uh, in a bit, but I'm more than happy to. But, um, you know, when I first joined, I wasn't using it. Um, and actually, when I did join, I mean, still drank because it's the army, right? And I'm an alcoholic, so it's like, you know, yin and yang together. But, um, yeah, like I didn't really touch around, not even pot or anything. You know, I was pretty determined to get in and make a better life for my family. Cool. I mean, well, not cool, but like yeah. interesting because yeah. you're saying like you joining the army is like and being an alcoholic is yin and yang. Yeah. So it's like, what, why, why do you say that? Okay. Um. So for those who might not be familiar with the military, um, drinking culture is huge, right? And, you know, you can, I have my thoughts about it. I think alcohol is personally the most socially and physically harmful drug of them all. That's just my personal opinion. But in the military, you know, it's encouraged. And when I came in in 2014, right, obviously you're not going to be having any kind of alcohol and basic training. And then after your basic training, you go to like an AIT where I would compare it to like a low security prison. Like you got to check in with mommy and daddy drill sergeant every night and formations and I mean, you can you can read more about that, but um, it's it's pretty authoritarian, like all encompassing environment. You always got eyes on you, but people manage to sneak drinks, and you know I was one of them. I got caught that way. Uh, I got an Article 15 for that, which is basically um, it's it's called non-judicial punishment. So your commander says, "Hey, I caught you messing up," but instead of taking you to court martial for you know a relatively minor offense. In the grand scheme of things, I'm going to just give you this uh, extra duty and take a little bit of your pay. So, um, yeah, there was so, but yeah, when I, reason I said that uh, army and alcohol are like yin and yang and they just go together is it's just embedded in the culture. I mean, if you, they have these things called balls where it's like a formal, like, you know, wear your dress uniform and all that. And those things are just like, oh, it's, it's everybody just getting hammered out of their minds and 
It's uh, a friend of mine, Hannah, actually described it as like a psychological thing because there's a lot of mass punishment in the army. Um, they don't really hit people like they did back in the day now, but there's definitely a lot of mental and uh, verbal abuse and manipulation of like, you know, messing with your head and all that. And some people are power tripping. So you get all this tension built up and then it comes to a point where you're, um, you know, you get together, whether it's with like your buddies in the barracks on a Friday night or it's at a unit ball or whatever, you all get like blackout piss drunk and it's kind of like the cathartic release. So it's like build up the tension all week and then you go to the weekend, you drink to oblivion and then you purge it out and you're ready for the next week. And it's like a repeating cycle of abuse. So to answer your question, that's why I said that. Yeah, I mean that's an incredibly interesting answer and I've got buddies that are in or that were in, um, you know, it's kind of like the poverty draft is, is yeah. the way it's been explained. I'm from a pretty, it, it white, is hundred percent right. I'm from a pretty white trash area and it's, you either go to a state school, you don't leave the town or you kind of go into the military and, yep. uh, the situation that you were in, you had no health insurance. Your wife was just diagnosed with diabetes. Um, you had a stepchild and uh, a biological child and another child on the way. And it was like, mm -hmm. what is, what is my option? And your right. option was being drafted into the military, whether you liked it or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess, because, you know, military background too is like, my dad was in the army for just, he just did a four year stint as a military policeman. He was stationed at Fort Irwin, which when I was growing up, I didn't, I was like, oh, okay. But Fort Irwin, for those who don't know, is home to, it's called the National Training Center, which is like the closest, most realistic simulation you'll ever get to like a, a full-on war between like China and the United States or Russia and the United States. Like it's, it's pretty intense. But anyways, it's in the middle of uh, the desert in this town called Barstow. It's like 40 minutes away from the local Walmart, literally in the middle of the desert, nothing going on there. And uh, he was there with an MP, um, is a military policeman. And, you know, I always ask him, like, hey, dad, you know, like, why did you join if you hated it? He's like, oh, they gave me enough money to buy a Camaro with my bonus. I was like, oh, cool. So that's kind of another thing. I was like, oh, well, dad got, you know, he got a pretty nice bonus. Let me see what I can sign up for. Mm hmm. So. That is kind of the motivation to get you in, but like you're in, you're in this culture of alcohol and being abused by the system that you're in. Mm -hmm. And that's just leading to a spiral. I can see it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Now, as far as the day to day of the army goes, um, I haven't really found many shows or media in general that portrays it accurately, but I think anyone who's been in more than a minute will agree with me that the United States Army, and I guess you could probably expand it to the whole military, is the easiest job in the world. Like, as long as you show up to work on time wearing the right clothes that your boss told you to wear, and you just do what you're told, you don't have to do it correctly. You don't even have to put a big effort into it. You just, you know, look like you're doing what you're told. Uh, it's impossible to get fired, you know? Like, you got to mess up pretty badly to get fired from the Army. So it's an easy job, and I think that's what keeps a lot of people in. And, um, you know, like uh, my wife being a ex-wife now being a, a, a diabetic, having all the kids and everything. Uh, my son actually has um, – he's on the autism spectrum so like mm -hmm. helping him get services for all that, uh, that's kind of how they rope you in once you're in. It's like that 
it's called TRICARE. It's, it's basically socialized medicine. Um, I wouldn't say the military is a socialist institution. It's far from it, but that aspect of it is very much like, yeah, it's, it's a huge pull for people. Yeah. And, uh, can you speak more, um, now that we've kind of laid the groundwork for you getting uh-huh. into the military and, and what the culture is like, can you speak more to what your time was like in the military and basically the meat and potatoes of, of what we're talking about today? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So join in 2014, basic training. Um, it takes me to like early 2015 and then I go to AIT. Um, my MOS is real small, so I don't want to give that away. Uh, it was signal. I was in the signal Corps, So for those who might not know, the signal Corps is, um, like army communications. So my specific was setting up routers and switches, um, you know, terminals that connect to like other terminals through line of sight or satellite shots or whatever, uh, the encryption and decryption of communications, like all, all that kind of thing. If it involves radios or internet, like I probably had my fingers in it. Um, that's more or less what I did the whole time I was in. That was my gotcha. uh, original signed MOS. But uh, so, yeah, basically get to the unit at the end of 2015. Cause my AIT was really long. It was like nine months, which I might be like the lo- one of the longest, if not the longest in the army. It was pretty intense. So but, what's uh, an AIT? Yeah. And, oh, so yeah. An AIT is uh, advanced individual training. It's like job school, like gotcha. vocational school for whatever your assigned job is. But um, yeah. So anyways, finish the job training AIT get to the unit at the end of 2015 and uh you know things are pretty chill then i'm just kind of getting used to it and i'm like this isn't so bad like this is like the easiest job i've ever fucking had i could do this for 20 years like i i want to be clear like i didn't really believe in it you know i didn't believe like oh america number one but i was like hey you know like all i'm fucking doing every day is sweeping and mopping a floor you know or you know, paint, spray painting something on the side of a truck. Like, I'm not fucking uh, the imperialist pig that's murdering children. Um, that, uh, spoiler alert, um, ends up that no matter what your job in the army is, whether you intend to do that or not, uh, that, that is what you end up doing. I'll get more to that in a bit, though. So anyways, funny story. Um, now it's like summer 2016, right? About May, June time frame. Uh, you know, I'm like, Hey, I don't want any more kids and I like having sex. So I'm going to go get a vasectomy. Plus I can get some of those Percocets, right? Uh, Percocet, like the, the opiate painkiller, it's pretty strong. And then, uh, so I go to the surgery, you know, I have, you know, the snip snip and you have to go to like a class before you do that. And then you're put on a waiting list. And, uh, but they called me and they're like, Hey, this other dude backed out. Like you're next on the list. Um, you know, you want to come do it tomorrow? So I go tell, you know, like, hey, let me go ask my chain of command. So I go ask my NCO, that's a non-commissioned officer, like your manager, more or less, for the enlisted. So yep, I'm like, okay. hey, sergeant, uh, sergeant um, can I, uh, you know, have the surgery? And the command approves it anyways. And they're like, oh, by the way, uh, you get three days of recovery. And then you're back on a profile, which is kind of like, a, it's like a limited duty, like outlines. Hey, you had a surgery, so no lifting up heavy objects for like however many days is what a profile is but anyways they're like hey you're on profile uh, after your three days you're on profile you come back by the way you're going to alpha company to go to iraq and i was like oh okay like it's about to get real right so uh you know do all your train up and everything and then we actually left on 
uh, New Year's Eve of 2016 to go to Iraq. Uh, but you don't fly straight into Iraq, right? You fly into Kuwait, um, which is very hot. I think it's like the hottest country in the world. Um, hung out there for two weeks, and then I flew off to Iraq. It was um, I was stationed at Al Assad Air Base, which is, uh, if you recall, from early in 2020 before the coronavirus really popped off. When uh, the big thing was like Iran and uh, General Soleimani. Uh, yeah, yep. Yep, it was uh, basically the same base that the Iranians shot the missiles at was like the one I was at. I mm. never went through anything quite that terrifying, but uh, as you can tell, that base likes to get bombed a lot and shit. So uh, we would deal with mortars and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of weird because you eventually just almost get used to it because there's like this alarm that goes off, right? And it has the most distinct sound, and like even to this day, four years after the fact, I'll still get freaked the fuck out if I hear it. But uh, mm -hmm. it, you know, the first couple times you hear, like, "Oh my god, the end of the world!" But then eventually, because you know the mortars don't always land where they're intended, so half the time they land in like the airfield where there's freaking nobody there, right? And so uh, you just kind of like, "Oh, okay, this alarm, like, shut the fuck up, let me get back to sleep." But, um, yeah, there was a couple times where, you know, it would be real close and I could, like, feel it shaking on the walls and everything. Mm -hmm. um, there was one time that was really bad where we were sitting under a bunker for, like, a solid three hours. And, like, um, when I say a bunker, it's basically, like, a small concrete tunnel that's maybe mm -hmm. about three feet high. And you got a bunch of people packed in there shoulder to shoulder. Uh, there's, like, bird shit all over the floor because we, like, lived in a decommissioned uh helicopter hangar it was fun times but uh yeah you're just sitting there like is i mean at this point there was so much shit going on like so much sounds like normally you can kind of tell like if it's outgoing or incoming based on the sounds but like there was just so much explosions i was like what the fuck is going on right now and thank yeah, god that nobody probably got messed your head up a little bit yeah it's it certainly did and there was there were some other incidents too uh I'll go ahead and throw up a content warning for this one because it is, is it is a bit graphic, but uh, I was fixing, doing something in the medical area, like helping him out with that, right? And they rushed this dude in and uh, they're like, hey man, like we got to do an operation, you got to get the fuck out. And I like look over and there's a dude with his fucking like leg just blown off and it looked like, I, I really can't even like cook skirt steak to this day or flank steak or whatever it's called because it kind of looks like when when your leg is severed but anyways that 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 image kind of like burned in my head and it's just yeah. like the smells and everything there's there's a lot of stuff but those were the two incidents that most stuck out to me but yeah it was um nobody i knew died or anything i never got like injured in combat or anything i by no means am i rambo i don't want to give anyone that impression but i did still see and experience some things that messed with my head a lot on deployment yeah, I think that's a, something that's kind of common with people that are deployed and then come back. It's difficult to adjust. Yes, and uh, the other thing that bugged me was, like I said, I, I worked on the internet a lot, right? So uh, what do they use the internet for in Iraq? Well, they use it to launch. Uh, they have a system called HIMARS, which is like basically a truck with a missile launcher on the back of it. that shoots surface-to-surface, uh, -surface, like long-range missiles um, that just completely obliterate you know any life form in a square radius of however many feet right uh, and they also drones right drones are the big one that's how america does most of its war nowadays and the seven countries we have combat operations going on and 
So all the drone feeds would be piped through the internet that I built. And then it was weird because, like, the contractors would be like, hey, dude, check this out. And they would, like, show you a video like, yeah, dude, check this. We smoked this dude. And his, like, arms are flying across the screen. And I saw this, like, I, I couldn't even begin to put a number on it. It was, like, day in and day out. I just saw so many similar videos of just wanton disregard for life on mm-hmm. the part of the army that it was just like there's one time they just blew up an entire fucking apartment complex like how do you know there wasn't people in there you know like even if there weren't people in there you just destroyed a, the homes of multiple families like you really think they're gonna you know they might think the islamic state's looking a little tempting to join at that point right mm-hmm. so that's that's another big thing that messed me up but yeah those were basically the three things i would say from deployment as far as that goes uh, kind of messed me up and also the whole you know like uh just wife cheating on you and all that um and you know like relationship issues and it was just it was just a number of things really uh yeah so there's this constellation of uh there's this constellation of things that's coming together here it's like you had you kind of were forced to go into the army because you needed the insurance and the money you weren't really expecting to get deployed to iraq um the bad assumption by the way if anyone's still in or listening to this bad assumption yep yep because you thought to yourself from what i remember you saying was oh i could do this for 20 years Mm -hmm. just working on internet and cables for the military and then boom you're in iraq after two weeks in in kuwait um on a layover basically and then your base is just getting mortar shot at it day in and day out. You're yep. cleaning, you're cleaning or installing something and in a medical bay and they just rush a dude whose leg is blown off in there. Mm-hmm. And then these contractors are showing you videos of them just blatantly destroying things like mm-hmm. war hawkishly destroying things and disregarding yeah. human life. Making a joke out of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the weight of all that stuff must have been soul crushing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was doing some stupid shit when I was uh, in Iraq because obviously, you know, they're not, it's a, one, it's an Islamic country and two, it's, uh, you know, the army deployed. So you're not going to be drinking alcohol there, but I found a workaround, which is they had this shit. This is just to give you an example of like, this is where the shit started ramping up. Um, yeah, but yeah, I would go and uh, get Odul's non-alcoholic beer, which it actually has like what zero point five percent alcohol. So I was able to somehow or another get uh, like a, a wine cork, a two-liter bottle of soda, and so I would like pour the Odul's into the two-liter and, and then get the wine cork, and then get like a bicycle pump with the little you know the little needle thing it has that you put into the mm-hmm. the uh, tire. So I would take that into the cork and I would pump a bunch of air into this two liter with Odul's, right? And um, what that did was, uh, you know, as the, depending on the, uh, the the environmental pressure, it can actually cause the alcohol to vaporize and separate from the, the beer portion of it. So you get this alcohol vapor like a bong, you know, just like rip off the thing and and you get drunk for like 10 minutes. It's, it's also really bad for you, so don't try that. But uh so the liver doesn't filter it, but yeah, it's uh, I was doing shit like that. How often were you doing stuff like that? 
Um, honestly, I only did it a couple times, and then I kind of got skeeved out. Like, eh, I feel like a fucking junkie right now, uh, you know. So I, I, I did it a couple times, but I felt like that was foreshadowing. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, it, that's pretty... Now that I think back on it, like, that's a pretty desperate fucking length to go to to, you know, change your con- alter your consciousness and get messed up. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about going down this this road with you um mm-hmm. and it was foreshadowing for what um okay so yeah when i started getting back to the united states uh first thing i did like before i said hi to my kids and everything was go to like the gas station and get beer and from uh you know from that point on it was just like just like i did in high school you know getting blackout drunk a couple times a week uh you know, like skipping out on PT because I was hungover, but I was also good at my job and just got promoted to sergeant. And uh, well, the way the army actually works is the more rank you have, the less trouble you get in for minor shit. So, uh, you know, I was able to kind of take advantage of that and, you know, like, oh, I overslept PT or whatever and stuff like that. But um, as far as the drugs go and everything, that really started off with the pandemic. So I'm not, I'm not going to bore you with the whole career, but uh, I ended up PCSing to Fort Riley What's in 2018. PCSing? PCSing is like when the military says, hey, you're, you're moving from this base to another base, and we'll pay for you to move all your stuff. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, PC, uh, yeah, I basically moved to Fort Riley in 2018. Um, my marriage is pretty much in shambles at this point. And, in fact, it was like, got been there in 2018 august and by december of 2018 she was just like nah i've had enough of your shit and uh you know kicked me out and i was just like i'm not trying to start anything as uh it's like i'll go live with my buddy and then um yeah so basically 28 and then this whole time um i'm trying not to get bogged down in the little details but like you were saying earlier, like, I'm just having time to decompress. I'm not, like, caught up in it every day and had some time to really think, really, really think about what was going on. Mm-hmm. And then um, in 2019, I actually went to Poland, uh, you know, because we had the whole Operation Atlantic Resolve, like they say, you know, quote, unquote, deter Russian aggression, which uh, we can, I can get into that another time, but it's bullshit. But anyways, I was in Poland, and in Poland, the alcohol was really cheap, and... um yeah, I just started, just like, took it to the next level, just, like, getting blackout drunk probably every other night, if not every night. Um. That concludes part one of episode three with Jay. And we're going to find out next episode what happens in Poland. Where does he go from here? What is he doing now? And what does his future look like? Well, we're going to find out in part two of episode three.